This episode of Bag of Bones has been sponsored by Fresh Start Freight Broker Courses and the Etowah River Campground in Dahlonega, Georgia. Dictionary.com defines the word abandon as to give up or discontinue any further interest in something because of discouragement, weariness, distaste, or the like. To abandon one's efforts. The definition of relinquish implies being or feeling compelled to give up something one would prefer to keep. To relinquish a long-cherished desire, for example. This episode looks at a few places that fall under one or both of those definitions. Abandoned doesn't always mean haunted, and haunted doesn't always mean abandoned. What I am discovering more and more, if relinquishing a place or object is the underlying reason for abandonment, there is more likely to be spirits still holding on. Either way, let's visit some places that have been left behind. Moments in history that are ghostly reminders of what once was, and some might even come with a few ghosts. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. In 1856, the Locust Run Coal Mine opened in Centralia, Pennsylvania. Shortly after came the Coal Ridge Mine, and then the Hazeldale Colliery Mine, the Centralia Mine, and finally the Continental Mine in 1863. The town was incorporated in 1866 and ran steadily as a mining town until the 1920s. Centralia had just under 3,000 residents that depended on the coal mines producing and when the coal began to thin out, many of the miners signed up to fight in World War I. The crash of 1929 all but closed down the mining industry in the area, leaving the town atop miles and miles of deserted coal mines. A few die-hard miners turned to bootlegging and snuck back into the closed mines and continued to mine for coal by chipping away at the few nuggets of coal found in the pillars that were left behind to support the roof of the tunnel. Obviously, causing many of those tunnels to collapse. Probably shouldn't be a big deal, right? I mean, people aren't supposed to be in there anyway. Right? Yeah, let's go with that. Now let's skip ahead a few decades, bringing our story to about the 1960s-ish. The town of Centralia, Pennsylvania, still finding a way to thrive, always has a big to-do for Memorial Day. As part of the preparations for the event in prior years, they would burn the landfill to get rid of the trash, the foul odor, and the rodent accumulation. For every year this is done, it's required by law that a fire-resistant clay was to be installed between each layer of burned landfill. This hadn't been done in a time or two. Without that barrier, the fire would burn hotter and could possibly reignite past burns that had been thought to be extinguished. In the year of 1962, five members of the volunteer firefighters were assigned the task to burn the landfill that was accumulating along an abandoned strip mine pit next to the Old Fellows Cemetery just outside of town. 
This year they anticipated to be just like the rest. Only this year, the fire was not fully extinguished and continued to burn. And since there wasn't a clay barrier, somewhere along the landfill there was an unsealed portion of one of the coal mines, and the land fire fell into it. The fire ignited the bits of coal still left in the mine and spread it in several directions, growing hotter and hotter as it made its way silently underground. The residents above the tunnels had no idea that a slow fire burned beneath them. Eventually, suspicions grew that there just might be a problem happening underground. They were quickly justified in their fears when 12-year-old Todd Domboski was suddenly swallowed up by a sinkhole in his backyard. Luckily, he was pulled to safety by his cousin Eric, but as thick, billowing steam forced its way free through the new opening, it was discovered to contain dangerous, lethal levels of carbon monoxide. The town was faced with a hefty decision. Fix the problem, or vacate the town. Seeing as how many of the tunnels collapsed over the years, capping them off would prove to be extremely expensive. So, in 1983... Congress allotted over $42 million to assist the residents in relocation options. Most of the people accepted the buyout, but there were a few that stubbornly stayed put. Even though more than 500 buildings were demolished and the U.S. Postal Service revoked their postcode, five homes would not be moved. Located on Pennsylvania Route 61, there was a section of abandoned town called Graffiti Highway. Artwork, motivational inspirations and quotes, signatures, murals, and those who are concerned of the people's lack of understanding of certain parts of the human anatomy are all represented down this colorful stretch of empty, split highway. At one point, this section of road buckled and a deadly steam pushed through the crack and burned well into the twenty-teens. But eventually, People would ride their off-road vehicles, walk down the center, take photos, and add new layers to the miles and miles of colorful art. The five homes that were left were granted permission to stay, but once they leave, either by death or by choice, their homes would transfer to the state closing down this little town for good. This small strip of highway has brought tourists from miles and miles and states and states away to witness this conglomeration of thoughts and ideas and anatomy. For a short time, since the fires have moved away from the area, talks were in the works of it becoming a more welcoming and profitable option for tourists by offering festivals or food trucks or other services that those that go off the popular highway and byways to seek out for posterity's sake. But sadly, like the coal mines and the town the highway once led to, the graffiti highway is abandoned once again. As of April 2020, under the guise of COVID, the highway was completely painted over, and future guests have been sternly discouraged. Freight brokers play an instrumental role in the shipping industry. They ensure that a variety of goods move across the U.S. from one location to another without complication. Demand for freight brokers continues to increase as the industry evolves. Starting a freight brokerage business or maintaining a current one appears to have a positive job outlook for this career. If you've been wanting to break into or excel in the freight broker industry, Fresh Start Lifestyles has the answer. Call Amanda or Amber to find out how the complete Fresh Start Freight Broker course with certificate 
can get you started in a new career. Call Fresh Start Lifestyles for more information at 833-373-7475. That's 833-373-7475. Michigan Central Railroad was an object of great civic pride, says the historic Detroit website. The station created a majestic setting for passengers, many of whom had come to associate train stations with soot, smoke, and noise. Eight million bricks and an estimated 16 million, almost 330 million in today's currency, later, the first train pulled into the new Michigan Central Railroad station from Chicago on December 26, 1913. The three-story train depot that supported an 18-story office tower became a recognizable, welcoming feature on the horizon of Detroit, Michigan. Willa Houston, who grew up around the station as her father was one of the railroad conductors, has said, quote, It was the most beautiful station in the country outside of New York or Chicago, a feather in the city's cap. You would have thought you were in Buckingham Palace, end quote. The huge expanse was practically a small city within the walls, offering travelers everything they could possibly need. In addition to the grand waiting area, it offered a restaurant with elegant surroundings or a more simple lunch counter. It had shaving stations, bathing facilities, and shoe shines. A communication center was also an option where passengers could send telegrams, buy and send postcards, or make telephone calls. Everything pointed to a mastery of travel, the smooth transition of transportation. They thought of everything to offer comfort and convenience to their guests. The station was massive and roomy, so you never felt crowded. Everything was clearly marked, so you couldn't get lost. The atmosphere was elegant and peaceful, so as to put the passengers at ease. Just outside, you could find a streetcar entrance a carriage entrance, which turned into a hub for catching a cab. There was underground parking for overnight travelers. The parking also made it simple for the locals, whose job may have been in one of the thousand offices above the station. And then, 74 years after the first train rolled in, train number 353 headed for Chicago would be the last train that left the station on January 5, 1988. It was quickly repurchased within the year with the hopes of turning the grand structure into a casino and hotel, but the city would not pass the laws to allow gambling. The building would go through another sale, but the new owners were overwhelmed with what to do with the massive property. The only thing they knew for sure was that the investment was losing money daily. Eventually, the building fell to disrepair, vandalism, and looting. The beautiful, ornate work from within was either stolen or smashed to bits. Anything worth anything was stolen early on. Even though the new owner put up razor wire and tried several means of security, the vandalism and vagrancy continued. For years, the city was unable to come to a decision as to what to do with the building, and even though it was privately owned, the city boards and other activists had their say in the matter. Many wanted to tear it down, and many others couldn't bear to see the historical structure taken away. Bottom line, to demolish or to renovate would end up costing in the millions. Enter Ford Motor Company. In 2018, the Ford Motor Company purchased the building 
and only moments after the announcement was made for the sake of the press, once the handshaking was finished, the team removed their suit jackets, rolled up their sleeves, and got to work right away. Ford had been making plans to completely remodel it and turn it into offices, a showroom, a restaurant, and a tourist attraction. The work that has been done on the premises is already so amazing. They have gotten the support of the community behind them and have been moving steadily toward their goal of reopening in 2022. The majestic Michigan Central Railroad began and ended its reign with the legacy of moving people from one destination to another, and the Ford Motor Company picks up the legacy and moves it into the future, again with transportation for the next generation. Many people have fond memories of purchasing their first car from the Motor City, and now, in the near future, they can again. If you're old enough to remember who Lil Abner and Daisy May are, the comic strip characters by Al Cap, then you might recall this next abandoned place. Once upon a time, in the late 1960s, there was a theme park in the Ozarks of Arkansas called Dog Patch USA. It was at this theme park where the characters from the Lil Abner comic strip came to life. It was hillbilly-themed, as featured in the storyline. When you walked into the park, you were instantly transported to a small rural, very rural, town, where characters would leap into your arms, grab you, and wait until someone took a picture, with buildings that looked like they had come right out of the 1800s, because they had, southern-style deep-fried foods, festival games, and more. Deep southern drawl, gaping holes in their smile, cut-off jeans, poorer than poor and dumber than dumb, says the brochure. Throw in a few musical productions, old-fashioned arts and crafts booths, and a few low-key carnivalesque rides, and my friends, you have in essence, Dog Patch. The Little Abner comic strip was created in 1934 and at its peak reached over 60 million readers. The park opened in May of 1968 with a crowd of 8,000. In 1969, its second season, the park opened late due to bad weather and late deliveries of the new rides, but they still came out ahead. It was the season of Hillbilly Vogue. The investors just knew they had it made because the comic strip was popular, appearing in over 800 newspapers nationwide, and the hillbilly trend appeared to be everywhere. On television, there were hits like Petticoat Junction, Green Acres, and the Beverly Hillbillies. So, the park added 120 camping spaces and a mobile motel. The first few years, despite a few hiccups, the park did relatively well. It was making a profit, and investors really thought they had a hit on their hands, and decided it was time to expand the park to include a ski resort and another motel in 1972. Leave it to the weather not to cooperate. Their first and second seasons of having the slopes open were some of the mildest winters on record, and the expense to bring in the artificial snow was costing them more than they were recouping. Looking back, they didn't act irrationally. They did their research, finding that more Americans were spending their vacations skiing rather than golfing. They budgeted and followed advice of consulting firms, who by the way, we're sure that Dogpatch would be bringing in 1.2 million visitors by the year of 1977, even without a ski resort. 
They had no way of knowing that a few things that were completely out of their control would cause them to fall and never regain their footing. First and foremost, the consultant was dead wrong, and I mean not even close. The first year they had over 300,000 in attendance, but every year following, they never surpassed the 200,000 attendance mark. But even the most knowledgeable consultant could have had no idea that tourism was going to plummet due to reduced access to oil. Add insult to injury, the mild winters continued. Banking interest rates would double, and the final blow, the little Abner comic strip would completely disappear from the funny pages. They did their best to try and keep up with the likes of Disney and Silver Dollar City, but it just wasn't meant to be. At most, they had two, maybe three years of great reviews, service, and revenue. If you want an interesting read of all the possible ways to try and save a business, read the history of Dogpatch USA. They literally tried everything. The theme park gods were not in their favor. If you can envision someone climbing up a steep hill with loose rocks and they lose their footing, they don't fall, but they keep tripping and stumbling, arms and legs flailing, trying to stay upright all the way back down. That was the demise of what Dogpatch looked like. By the time they might have had some financial footing and things might have been able to turn around, the Lil Abner comic strip had long retired and no one really knew who these characters even were. They did try various other projects, not including the Al Cap characters, but eventually they had to close the gate. And to this day, the land sits just as it did that closing day in 1993. The vines and greenery reclaiming the land, bursting through the pavement and weakening the structures, and as I mentioned, they were original 1800 buildings to start with, so without proper care and upkeep, they are literally crumbling into dust. Even as recent as 2020, there are whispers of groups wanting, hoping to breathe new life into the property, but it just hasn't happened. There are pictures online from those who have been allowed beyond the gates to capture the images of what was once many people's memories of fond vacations. The former ski resort is now a bar restaurant for motorcycle riders who take in the scenic highways. The business overlooks the park below, and if you look closely, you can still see the water slide, the last remaining ride inside the park. Do you want to know the best way to doom an amusement park to fail? build it on an Indian burial ground. You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. 
not just the dates and battles, and I've discovered that others do too. So I've created a group in Facebook and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. In 1783, Native Americans killed three of the 14 children from the Mitchell Clay family who, unbeknownst to them, decided to settle and farm 800 acres right on top of an Indian burial site in Mercer County, West Virginia. The family, plus some other settlers, retaliated, tracked down, and killed the encampment of Indians. Fast forward to the 1920s, when Connolly Sindow came to the town and thought the vast empty field and small lake already on it would be perfect for his amusement park. It wasn't long before he brought in a giant circular swing, a ferris wheel, and a few other carnival rides, and for the adult guests, dance hall and speakeasy. There was also a concrete swimming pool with two slides and a few diving boards. He built a bathhouse beside it and rented out wool bathing suits for 15 cents. The park was very popular and stayed busy, but misfortune seemed to plague the amusement park. It's said that six deaths, at least, occurred on the grounds. It began with two boys drowning in the lake, which was not meant for public swimming, but rather used for fishing and later paddle boats. The other deaths are not really documented from what I could find, but the park had to close in 1966 due to the death of a little girl on a circular swing ride. Apparently, a delivery truck backed into the swings while attempting to turn around. The ticket booth was shut down, many of the rides were sold off, and the park went dark. In the 1980s, a former worker of the original amusement park decided to reopen it. He set about purchasing new rides, adding in some kiddie rides, bumper boats, and a stage for entertainment, but a couple of things were still missing. So he set about on his search to find the last two missing pieces he felt would remind people of the former Lake Shawnee amusement park in all its glory, a Ferris wheel and a circular swing. He found a Ferris wheel in no time, but finding the right kind of swing seemed to be a bit more of a problem. When he did finally locate one, it really was perfect. They brought it in, set it up, and when they looked a little closer at the serial numbers, they discovered it was the same exact swing as before. Right, the same swing, but with a new upgrade. Now it was haunted. The park opened to great reviews on the 4th of July in 1987, and more than 10,000 people came through. The Lake Shawnee Amusement Park only stayed open for three years. No, not because of deaths, but the insurance rates were cost-prohibitive so the owners looked for other possibilities for the property. They decided a more natural approach, fishing tournaments, dune buggies, and whatnot, and while they were breaking ground to create mud-bogging courses in the 1990s, they found artifacts. 
Native American artifacts. It started with arrowheads and bits of pottery and pipes, but the more they dug, they started to find human bone. They brought in the specialists, and it was discovered that over 3,000 bodies were buried in the area, mostly children and elderly. The archaeologists believe that the tribe must have contracted a deadly disease that wiped out the majority of the tribe. The survivors had to move elsewhere, but not before creating a mass grave for the lost loved ones. Shifting gears once again, they abandoned the idea of mud bogging and leaving 90% of the bones where they were, the owners decided to cash in on the sheer creepiness they discovered on the property. They began to offer the park for Halloween haunted ghost stories, campfires, and hayrides. Every Halloween, the event got bigger and bigger, and today, the Halloween Dark Carnival is the only event that is promoted for the year. However, when the owner's son, and then the owner himself, passed on, several paranormal investigators started requesting permission to visit the site. The owner believes that her husband and son are still active on the property. Several of the popular ghost hunting shows have captured active spirit activity on camera, and she has been proven correct. She believes her husband is still doing the things he loves, and that's puttering around the carnival rides. If you ask for permission to come onto the grounds, it's usually granted. The caretakers of the land like to remind their guests to take several pictures of the same spot to see if there are any variances from each, and many people are not disappointed. Additional faces or shadows have been seen in many of the photos. Many say that the little girl is very active. The son, who converted the old school bus into his hangout, often makes appearances. And when you stand beside the edge of the burial grounds, you can hear whispers, feel someone touching your hair, or brushing past you. The abandoned amusement park staples, such as the Ferris wheel, swings, and a few other items, seen and unseen, are still there, waiting for new visitors. In 1886, approval was given for the building of an intermediary penitentiary. This facility would house and reform lawbreakers that were too old for juvenile corrections between 16 and 21, but those whose misdeeds did not deem necessary for a more strict reform of the Ohio State Penitentiary. So, by 1896, the Ohio State Reformatory, designed by Ohio architect Levi Schofield, and costing upwards of $1.3 million, opened its gate to the first set of inmates. He created this structure to resemble a cathedral, in hopes that by putting the inmates in this setting, they would be uplifted by their surroundings. The reformatory was intended for just that, to reform the inmates and send them back out to have a purposeful, functioning, non-repeat offender lives. When the inmate is sentenced, the time frame was for 18 months. While in that time, they were educated in religion, education, and a trade. If one 18-month session didn't do the trick, they would get one more chance to go through the program again. This program was considered successful, and many former inmates had returned to express their gratitude for getting them back on the right path. But even with the supporting data that the program was working, by 1960s, the reformatory lost its funding and the building 
even though it was not built for maximum security, was repurposed with stronger iron doors, double bunks, new staff, and the entire reforming method once used had to be restructured in response to the harder, more violent criminals that were coming in. They also added the hole, which stayed at 95 degrees and in total darkness, and you received limited rations. If you couldn't follow the rules, you would get sent to the hole for up to 30 days. As you can probably imagine, this area of the prison is said to be the most haunted. The story that most accompanies this is one particular summer, two inmates were confined to the hole at the same time for the full 30 days. Only one emerged. The guards found the body of the other inmate stuffed under the bed. The facility itself was in dire need of repair, and it was so bad that the inmates actually sued the prison for its poor housing conditions, and they won. Instead of investing in the costly repairs to save the reformatory, the state of Ohio focused on building a brand new facility nearby. The Ohio State Reformatory closed its doors in 1990. 154,000 men and boys have passed through the facility from its opening until 1990. But what this structure is probably best known for is being the location for the 1993 film The Shawshank Redemption and a few other films as well. The building had stayed completely empty for many years until a group decided to save it and appealed to the state, who sold them the property for one dollar. The Mansfield Reformatory Preservation Society now spends every dollar earned through events, movie locales, and tours back into the preservation of the 120-year-old institution. listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. The mountains of Dahlonega, Georgia, have their history steeped in the gold mining industry. Everywhere you turn, you can see the permanent footprint of the landscape that gives a glimpse of what miners did to pull the precious metal from its hidden veins under the surface. And for the untrained eye, you would most likely miss the tiniest disturbances in the land, the deep crevices creating jagged trails up the side of the hill, holes that one might assume was a natural-made cave, or the fresh overturned dirt indicating a new dig site. From the outside, it seems like a nice family park with picnic areas, tennis courts, walking trails, and for the more adventurous, hiking trails. Yahula Park is built along the river of its namesake and allows people a glimpse into its town's foundation and perhaps not even realize it. If you venture along one particular hiking trail, you'll keep the river to your left and if you glance up the steep side of the mountain on the other side, you'll see the telltale signs where the gold mining industry has left its signature behind. As you go deeper into the woods along the trail, for those who don't recognize the abandoned pieces of machinery left behind, they may very well keep walking past it, never even noticing. Or, if some feel they have the need, 
they stop off with their spray can in hand and leave their mark on the hundreds of year old miner's concrete, not having a modicum of respect for the remnants of a structure that made the town what it is today. But actually, here lies the remaining clues that was once the Findlay stamp mill and chute. Original pieces from the early 1800s can be found like hammered lead pipes that was used to funnel water up to the top of the mountain for a reserve, rotating lifters, and rusting iron cams used in the mining processes, but also the remains of a steam engine that was somehow brought into this tiny wooded area in the early 1900s to speed up the process of getting water to the reservoir to the top of the mountain and keeping the pressure so the hoses could deliver blasts of water to carve out the land in search of clues for their fortune. The Dahlonega method of mining was created and perfected here, says local gold mining historian Michael Dawkins. He points out the deep crevices in the sides of the mountain and brings into light the massive five-story wooden building that broke down thousands of pounds of ore to reveal thousands of dollars worth of gold. Through his descriptions and obvious passion for the mining history, he explains how the Dahlonega method used hydroblasting to clear away thousands of pounds of dirt to expose the ore beneath. Quote, the old-timers, he says, had to push the water using pumps made from cowhides and whatever else they could find to create that suction to draw water in and then push it up out through the hoses, end quote. Once the miners got in there and pickaxed their way through and loaded the carts up with huge pieces of ore, they would dump them at the mouth of one of the many chutes waiting for them. They would use the water from the reservoir to push the chunks of ore and every other mineral and metal down the huge, long wooden chutes into a mill to be pounded down and pounded down and pounded down by using three, sometimes four methods to create smaller and smaller rocks to sluice, to sand, until the heavy, shining chunks of gold presented themselves. The Findlay stamp mill was said to rise above the ground five stories and offered three different levels for ore to begin the pounding process. In 1876, the Findlay stamping mine upgraded its 24 stamps to 40 stamps and added the steam engine to pump water up the hill 175 feet above in order for the uppermost level to begin the pounding processes, only sending the smaller pieces down to the lowest level. This is the abandoned piece inside a handmade foundation made by the miners from the ground-up sluice, clay, and whatever else they can throw in. The framing board outlines can still be seen even if you have to look past the hot pink curse words and smiley faces. To show the importance of such an operation, according to the prospectus published by the Findlay Gold Mining Company of 1878, the Findlay lot, quote, is conceded by everyone to contain the largest mass of gold-bearing ores in the southern belt, end quote. These mountains are like Swiss cheese, Michael grins in the telling, and they will never find all the gold hidden here, end quote. A booklet entitled Announcement of the Dahlonega Consolidated Gold Mining Company, published in 1899, described the property, quote, the 40-stamp mill in excellent repair and another piece of machinery, which is a novelty, a pump, which is the only machine of its kind in existence, a duplex water motor made by Filer and Stowell of Milwaukee. It operates from the canal water under a head of 280 feet and lifts 176,000 cubic feet of water 
to the vertical height of 435 feet daily, end quote. Many pieces from the area have been collected and put on display to introduce and educate the next generation about our mining past, but these pieces were left behind, a direct marker of where the Findlay Stamp Mill and Chute once existed. If there was an award given to the most involvement with abandoned places, that would have to go to Texas artist David Adikis. Forty-three sculptures weighing anywhere from 11,000 to 20,000 pounds and some as tall as 20 feet are part of an abandoned park. Twice. We could almost say three times as there are three sets of these unique massive busts of the United States Presidents. In 2003, the President's Park opened in Leed, South Dakota, within a wooded park nestled in the Black Hills. If you drive one way, you would come across Mount Rushmore. If you drive the other way, you'd come across Crazy Horse Sculpture. So it would make sense that if you're already in the area of seeing political leaders carved into larger-than-life sculptures, why not take on all the Presidents at once? It seems like it would be a good fit. Only if you knew how to find it. The artist was inspired after seeing the four faces carved into the side of the mountain and went home to his studio in Houston, Texas to see what he could do. He crafted the molds of each of the presidents from styrofoam, then adding plaster to create the characteristic details for each head. The heads of each of the presidents is completely hollow. Go ahead, insert your own presidential punchline here. I'll wait. They are held together by wide bands of a steel skeletal frame. This has created a repeatable mold, allowing Adekis to manufacture as many as he wanted to, really. But who would need more than one? <laughs> Funny you should ask. While the President's Park outside of Leed, South Dakota, was Adekis's own brainchild, in 2004, Virginia had its own President's Park as well. He and local landowner Everett Newman attempted this huge undertaking just outside of Williamsburg. Their initial idea for the open-air park cost about $10 million to create. Again, it seemed like a brilliant location, but it was just a little too far outside of Williamsburg to get in on the local promotions, and the park itself was hidden behind a large motel. Again, the people didn't really know where to find it the park was forced into foreclosure in 2010. The land was set to be auctioned off and the busts destroyed, but Howard Hankins, who was assigned the task of destruction, opted to bring them home. All 43 busts to his home, which was just right down the road. He had a 400-acre farm that I guess wasn't being used for anything, so he used his equipment to begin the week-long process of bringing each one to their new home by the way of a flatbed truck. For wanting to preserve these busts is a noble thing, but maybe Howard didn't realize that the artist could just remold a new set. But over $50,000 was spent in lifting and transporting each bust one by one. Not one arrived to the property unscathed. Many had their noses busted off and gaping holes in the heads where the cranes had to grab a hold. And now they still sit in the same field in three rows with George Washington off to the side 
keeping them all in ranks. The plaster is peeling and cracking away, and the stains pock the faces even more with passing year and every passing rain. Poor Reagan has even been hit by lightning. Now, I suppose he still has hopes for the South Dakota location because the presidents still sit and wait for someone to come along and take their picture, but the park is marked as closed. However, David has continued to create the presidents as they come and go, and on last report, Obama was seen at several stops along the way from Texas to South Dakota, so I don't know. The third set, oh yes, there is a third set, It can be seen in and around the Houston, Texas studio of the artist, along with some other designs, including Charlie Chaplin standing 24 feet tall and in full color. Sometimes they can be seen through a fence. Others have said the fence was open and you can walk right up to them. As of January of this year, the artist, who is now, I think, 94 years old, is planning his fourth set. Yes, fourth. This new President's Park will be in Huntsville, Alabama. I just need them to come up with a new name. Maybe that's what the missing piece is. The busts will be in a circular design, all facing the American flag in the center. The park will include an overall timeline from 1776 to 2020. The Huntsville Museum President, Kenneth Lee, is confident as to the success of this display, saying, quote, The other two parks failed because they were private and no one was taking care of them. That won't happen here because the city, county, and college are heavily involved." So let's leave our presidents here with the hope that our repeat abandoned places offender can get off the list and that this new set of presidents won't be abandoned. I'm pretty sure we're running out of room for them. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Bag of Bones. And thank you to our sponsors, Fresh Start Freight Broker Courses and Etowa River Campground. Be sure to find their contact information in the show notes. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and a five-star rating and review on Apple would be most appreciated. Come and meet me over at social, either on Facebook or Instagram, at Bag of Bones Podcast. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.